0: All right. Hey, uh, welcome to the Vox podcast. Uh, I'm just popping in here real quick to say, hey, uh, this is a bonus episode. This is not part of our current series that comes out on Mondays uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. This is actually from a series Mike did a few years ago on reconciling faith and politics, which we thought could be helpful for folks in uh, this current uh, season that we're in right now so we hope you enjoy it we hope that it's helpful um without any further ado reconciling faith and politics part two
1: What we want to do is we want to continue to talk politics, and we want to talk politics through the lens of Paul's conversion. In other words, Paul tells us a bit about himself uh, autobiographically, and from what we know of Pharisees of Paul's day, um, we we have uh, uh, some confidence in making some assumptions about what Paul would have expected and believed and been passionate about as a Pharisee. Uh, prior to his meeting the Lord Jesus, and then what he was like after—he certainly, we certainly have much more insight on that as he's writing to these kingdom communities he's developing and planting all throughout um, Asia Minor. But um, there, there's, I think, there are the lessons to be learned uh, from Paul's change of perspective for us. If you remember, um, we've talked about how for Paul, the gospel, you know, and the hope of Israel and the messianic expectation, all of that was political. It wasn't just a spiritual thing. It was economic. It was social. Um, it uh, it was political in the deepest, truest sense of the word. And so Paul had certain assumptions about what that was like. And we talked last time, we ended the last time we had this conversation on just noting some of the ways that Paul's zeal had corrupted um, his understanding of Israel's vocation. And we noted some parallels between the corruption that had infected Paul and his his sort of political uh, understanding um, and the way in which some evangelical subculture, uh, uh, political subcultures have uh, been corrupted by similar things, by similar zeal, by similar misunderstandings of what it is that God's up to in the world. Now, The fascinating part is contrasting Paul's thought before with Paul's thought after. So if you need to go back and refresh yourself on uh, that previous episode, that might be a good idea because I'm picking up literally where we just left off. I know, I know that you guys listen to these sequentially and you listen to them the moment they come out. And you remember everything that we talk about. I have no doubt about it. But just in case, just wanted to remind you that um, this one picks up, uh, I think there was a list of four or five things where Paul's uh, zeal had kind of corrupted his, his understanding of the nature and vocation of Israel's politics in the world. Now, now Paul meets Jesus. And this meeting um, happens on the road to Damascus where Paul's in route, in route, in route, to, um, persecute the church. He's got arrest warrants for people who are spreading this to him, this blasphemous message. And, um, and so Jesus literally knocks him, um, off his donkey onto his behind, I guess. Um, and you can play, you know, with the word ass there in its double meaning, all you would like to, uh, but, but the fascinating, the fascinating thing is then Paul sort of recalibrates, he has to recalibrate a lot of his theology uh, because it's not just that he be, be believed that Jesus was Messiah, but it's how Jesus was Messiah. That was the thing that was so so difficult to understand. And that's the part that really has implications for how we do politics. It's not just that we believe uh, that Jesus is Messiah, but it's how Jesus um, won his kingdom. It's how Jesus came into his kingdom. It's how Jesus governs his kingdom. That's, that's the stuff that helps us through all the sticky political stuff you and I are dealing with today. So um, I want to give you a list of five things that Paul now realized, having met the risen and descended Jesus of Nazareth. Um, the, and the most obvious thing, number one, is that that The fact that for Paul, resurrection, and we've talked about this before, resurrection and you know, salvation, I mean, those words didn't just stand for some sort of spiritual reality that had to do with everything on earth, that had to do with social relationships, that had to do with economic issues, that had to do with justice issues, that had to do with politics, And so when he sees that the resurrection of Jesus was something that had indeed taken place, he has to recalibrate around the idea that God's salvific plan, the plan he'd been expecting the Messiah to inaugurate, that plan has now begun. And and the, the plan was holistic, that salvation was holistic. You can't parcel it out into what happens to your soul after you die. That would never have made any sense for Paul, even after he meets the risen Jesus. So when Paul realizes that resurrection has come, resurrection is shorthand for everything that shalom represents, The God's remaking the earth with himself as king. Not just king in the abstract sense like he is now. I mean, he is in fact king, of course, but he's allowing other wills to be done on the earth. No, no, no. When we say that God is remaking himself as king, uh, remaking the earth with him as king, what God's, what Jesus will say about that is that God's kingdom has come. That's a political entity. A kingdom is a political thing. Now, a kingdom can be made up of all sorts of different things. It can be kingdom, a kingdom can be based on boundaries. A kingdom can be based on ethnicity. This kingdom is going to be much different from that. But for Paul, the fact that Jesus had been resurrected, uh, although this was way different than what Paul expected, that was code for the fact that God's holistic program was kicking off. All right, the present evil age was going to go away and God's kingdom was now going to come and take root on the earth. So that's the first thing. The second thing, and and this is tied to the first, but we can't appreciate it, you know, 2000 years later, is the fact that it was the crucifixion of Jesus that brought this about. That the powers and the principalities, not only in the heavens but on the earth, they were called into question through Jesus's crucifixion, please understand that a Roman cross represented the most potent political symbol of domination and political defeat. The cross was not a religious symbol, not even remotely. It was a political symbol. It's a swastika. Um, it's um, uh, it's the flag of Israel. It's the 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 stars and stripes. I mean the 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 the. And again, I'm not saying that those are instruments of oppression. I'm just saying, certainly the Nazi swastika is. I'm just saying, when you saw a cross, that was a political statement in the same way seeing our flag would be a political statement, or seeing the flag of another country would be a political statement. Uh, A cross was a a political thing, and a cross um, was like a guillotine. It was like a a lethal injection. It was like being, you know, um, drawn and quartered. I mean, a cross meant you were defeated. A cross meant... Uh, the powers had won. I mean, the irony of the vindication of Jesus, um, um, who, according to Paul's thought, prior to meeting Jesus, I mean, the fact that Jesus was crucified, I mean, it says in Deuteronomy, curse is anyone who's hung by a tree. Uh, Paul would have seen Jesus as a failed, failed Messiah and that God had not vindicated Jesus because Jesus had been put to death by the Roman authorities in the most political of ways through the crucifixion on a cross. The fact that now Paul realizes that the resurrection of Jesus means that God has vindicated this Jesus, not just any Jesus, but the crucified Jesus. That means that far from being cursed by the God of Israel— that Jesus is now revealed to be the true Messiah, God's chief agent of salvation. He is resurrected. He has been exalted. He has been installed as the cosmic Lord, ruler of everything. Now, Paul would have, so, so of course, Paul would have expected the Messiah to come in political power. Messiah was a political word, as was kingdom, right? But the thing that was so fuzzy that Paul, I think, took a long time to grab hold of, and that we do too, is that the way the Messiah came into political power wasn't through the, the way that the enemy had tempted Jesus by bowing down to him, but was rather suffering the greatest of evils that could be done at the time, being, being abandoned and mocked and beaten um, and scourged and you know, left to die in a Roman, on a Roman cross outside the city of Jerusalem. I mean, you could not have imagined a more political death than the death that Jesus suffered. And yet... This was the death. I mean, please understand, the idea of salvation is political, but Jesus' death was political in that respect as well. Jesus was a, a, seen as a terrorist. Jesus now, uh, But we know the Romans were, but I'm just saying Jesus was an insurrectionist. You don't, you don't waste Roman crosses on people of just petty crimes. No, no, you put people to death who've demonstrated a willingness to rebel against Roman rule. So the fact that Jesus is carrying a cross and dies upon it, means for Paul that uh, not only has Jesus been resurrected, but the crucified Jesus has been resurrected. and, and, And then even more specifically and importantly, that God accomplished his salvific purposes, not through power or domination or coercion, but rather through the giving of the son of himself on a cross. It was it was self-serving love. It was servant-hearted love. It was the forgiving of his enemies as the enemies are putting him to death. The, the, the way the pol- the political entity of the kingdom of God was arriving was through the crucified Jesus. Now, those are the first, first two points. Third point, <sighs> And, and, and this is the one we'll develop in part four of this whole conversation. But because of this, Paul recognizes now that political engagement, and again, I don't mean political engagement in a two-party system like we're talking now, I mean engagement in the polis that you are surrounded by, that that kind of engagement has to be now, and this is a word that Michael Gorman uses that I love, it's cruciform, it's cross-shaped, that if if um, if Jesus, whom God has installed as ruler of all things, is vindicated and triumphs by means of the cross, then all those loyal to Him must be cruciform. Again, there's that word that is oriented by and shaped by the cross. Um, and this is I'm quoting Gombas right here. If the ruler is cruciform, then the body politic, the polis, the community of Jesus must have its political, economic, and social life holistically determined by the cross and not by power, coercion, or violence. Now, Saul had been using power, coercion, and violence to protect the, uh, the political entity Israel um, from this heresy of, of Christians that had been springing up all around Jerusalem. And so for him, this was a pretty radical reversal right? That he'd, he'd been not only sanctioning um, murders, but he had been somebody who was threatening people by putting them, or threatening people um, by threatening to put them to death and imprisoning them and so on. Now, Paul is going to recognize that it is through weakness and not strength the kingdom comes and that the policy of the people of Jesus is executed. The fourth, transformation um, of, of, of Paul's vision is that resurrection doesn't work like he had anticipated. Now, this is a little tough to explain, but the idea for Paul is that resurrection was going to be a singular event. There was a day, it was called the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. And it was a day of judgment. It was a day when God would return to the holy city and that everyone would be resurrected, the righteous as well as the unrighteous. The unrighteous to face judgment, the righteous to live life in the age to come. But this was going to be a moment, a singular moment that was called the resurrection of the dead. Now what's happened, and and, and this shapes so much of his thinking, Now what he's realizing is that resurrection did happen, but it only happened to one guy. And it's not happening to everybody yet. The the regular course of human history is still going on. See, the Jews of, of, of Paul's day thought that once this day of the Lord happened, the old age would be done away with completely and the new age would begin in its fullness. And instead what you have is like a mustard seed. You have the kingdom planted on the earth, and, and it's now growing, it's now moving, it's like leaven infecting a whole um, you know batch of dough. But it's coming through the resurrection of one person rather than the resurrection of everybody. And so it was going to unfold God's the fullness of God's kingdom was going to unfold over the course of time. So so we talk about you know the, the work of Jesus Began the kingdom. The kingdom is here. Jesus announced, um, "Repent, for the kingdom is at hand." And they would also tell parables where he would warn people against thinking the kingdom was coming all at once. And that is why, of course, uh, though as Jesus' followers we pronounce God as, as King, we still have things like sin, death, evil, uh, cancer, and uh, everything else that's wrong with the world. So now. Instead of Paul thinking, "Okay, there's this day of the Lord coming, no no, no. Jesus has come the The program has kicked off, but it's now going to happen much more slowly, deliberately, not as obviously as he'd originally thought. The fifth idea that's now operating uh for him um, the fifth idea is that um that that Paul uh, revises his understanding of God's relationship to the nations, because as as somebody who and we get this we get this from Paul's own words at times, but certainly hints of what Paul thought. Um, Paul had prejudices, the same prejudices as many of his fellow Jews had towards non Jews, people were called Gentiles or pagans, and that his vision of what the Messiah was to do was to vindicate Israel and to judge the evil and wicked nations of the world, to blast the nations off the map uh, for their idolatry and their opposition to Israel and to God. Um, But now the thing that's happening that Paul's really going to wrestle with, and and it's ironic that he, this guy who was the Jewish of all Jews, right? The Jewish of all Jews, is that a phrase? Um, This guy was now going to be ambassador to the non-Jews. The, the, this, this very Jewish, Jewish, Jewish man who boasts of his lineage, you know, who could play every Jewish card there was to play in terms of if you're impressed with those things. Now this guy is going to be the ambassador to the non-Jews. And so, so Paul had to overcome a very, very significant hurdle that God doesn't hate the nations, the Gentiles, nor does he long for their destruction. But just like in the book Old Testament book of Jonah, God desires the nations to come to repentance and to the knowledge of him. Uh, Jesus died not just for Israel, but for the whole world. And so, um, because God is now not just reaching the world through the ethnic people of Israel, but now pouring out his spirit on anyone who calls upon the name of this Jesus, God is pulling together a new people, a new body politic, a new polis, drawn together of all the nations, Jew and non-Jew. That was what was so scandalous to so many of Paul's Jewish contemporaries is that that the spirit was being poured out on non-Jewish people. Like the, the availability of the kingdom was available to them. And they didn't have to become Jewish first. As God builds this new community, Paul even calls it a new humanity, um, God is drawing forth people from all ethnicities and from all countries and from all nations. He's calling forth from all humanity a new humanity where those previous divisions were no longer the most important divisions. That's why uh, the singular title Jesus follower was infinitely more important as Jew, um, Gentile, Greek, Scythian, European, Italian, Irish. I mean, none of those are a significant Republican, Democrat, none of those are significant. And so one of the things I said in episode one that, I, I, that somebody questioned to me, to me on was, hey, you as a follower of Jesus, let's say you're totally progressive. You are, you are unbelievably um, aligned with the Democratic Party. You have more in common with a Trump-loving conservative who was a follower of Jesus than you do... The other political progressives that don 't follow Christ, your identity as a jesus follower and and, and i 'll deal with this individual 's question uh, at another time, but it was fascinating that there was a little bit of pushback there. Your identity as a Jesus follower is far far surpasses any other identity you could possibly have, and to me it 's evidence that our political pol- parties have discipled us better than our churches have. Uh, that we can't imagine that. I can't imagine having more, if I'm a progressive, I can't imagine having more in common with a Trump-loving Republican than I do my fellow progressives, um, if that Trump-loving Republican is a Jesus follower, right? I mean, that kind of blows our minds. So Paul had this kind of radical revisiting of so many of his assumptions. Now, um, the, the conversion of Paul's imagination here um, was, was far bigger than just his view of the afterlife, right? That's the huge point we keep, I keep trying to make, right? God, Paul uh, saw that God had installed a new ruler uh, over everything, this Jesus, um, things in heaven, things on earth, things seen and unseen, um, like this was a political reality. The kingdom of God was a political reality. It was a new polis, Um, and it was based around the identity of people who are now in Christ. Now, what Paul does, and this is where we'll kind of tee up the next podcast whenever we get back to this topic. Um, Paul, Paul, his transformed kind of uh, thought works itself out in the way that he talks to his churches. All right, so here are one, two three ways that Paul's thought works itself out in the life of churches. First of all, salvation for Paul is uh, the announcement that Jesus is Lord. Now, this is such a big deal, my brothers and sisters. It's not that there's a way to get to heaven when you die. For Paul, when Jesus says the kingdom of God has come, Paul translates that into Jesus is Lord. So the Jewish to his Jewish audience kingdom kingship kingdom of God language would have made total sense about what we were talking about there. The, the, this was the the fulfillment of Old Testament promises and and hints and and echoes that had been resounding throughout the generations about what God was going to do again with his people. He's going to come back to his people and install himself as king over them. Yes, yes, yes. That wouldn't have made similar sense to To Paul's non-Jewish audience. So what Paul does is he takes a Caesar word, Lord, and he applies it to Jesus. So the the gospel of Paul, um, among other things, is the announcement that Jesus is Lord. This is a political title. Messiah of Israel was a political title too. That's why Herod was threatened by it. But Lord is even a bigger, grander political title. And that means he's over, Lord over all things. If you want to see where Paul really develops this, Ephesians chapter one, it's like he is Lord over, um, over the, the powers and the authorities and the principalities and every name that's given. I mean, Paul just kind of goes on and on. He uses 14, I think, different words for powers and authorities uh, to describe Jesus's rulership over them all. All right, so the first thing to understand is that Paul's announcement, the heart of Paul's gospel is that Jesus, the crucified Jesus was the resurrected Lord of creation and earth, of heaven and earth, all creation, and that that was a political claim. Secondly, uh, Paul's uh, Paul's gospel was the announcement that this, this Lord, this Jesus, was creating a a gathered people that the kingship of Jesus was going to be manifest in the lives of people no longer based on ethnic identity or gender, but rather young and old, male, female, Jew or Greek, slave or free, didn't matter. Anyone who claimed the name of this Jesus filled with the same spirit that spoke creation into existence and will recreate the earth. This Paul says new creation is now within us for all those who call upon the name of Jesus. So salvation um, is uh, is entrance into this political reality. Uh, To quote Gombas again, Um, He calls it the new creation polis of God. It is the arrival of the long-awaited kingdom of God, a new and life-giving reality-altering, community-transforming realm into which God is drawing people by his spirit. This political reality is the emergence of a God-empowered, spirit-animated realm that manifests the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ through a radically new social order, the polis of Jesus. That, oh! That is so magnificent. I love this stuff, right? So Paul will use language like he's rescued us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, now political realities, uh, Paul's describing a political reality that isn't based on ethnicity or geography, but rather is based upon, uh, the, the standing of of people who come to Jesus, who are now in Christ and who have the spirit placed within them, who become bearers and agents and purveyors of the new creation itself. So, so this, this is massive and, and the politics of this, um, of this new polis are shaped uh, by the mission, the original mission and vocation of Israel. Paul uses lots of Israel language to describe the church. The church doesn't replace Israel, all right? Paul uses the image of like this tree that is these deep roots. And then there are these branches that are grafted on to this tree. And that's, so So the Jews, Paul's very clear. Jesus was very clear. Salvation comes from the Jews, right? The promise of Abraham, the promise given to Abraham Uh, Was that there would be an ethnic people, and through that people would come a blessing for the whole world. So, so we are co-heirs to the promises of Abraham, but but that doesn't mean we replace ethnic Israel. There's lots of debate about what role does ethnic Israel have in the future, and I'm not sure about much of that. I just I'm not a fan of replacement theology. I'm a fan of addition theology. That God took His chosen people and he now renewed them around the person of his son, Jesus, and added uh, to them people from every tongue, tribe, nation on the earth. And so what Paul will do then is begin to address the church in ways that are very reminiscent of the vocation that Israel was given. Not the way Paul understood it when he had his corrupt sort of political views, but the way it was initially given, it had Israel had to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Paul, Peter, um, John in the New Testament used some of this language, right? Paul uh, ta- calls the people holy, and holy was an Old Testament word. It meant not just set apart through more purity, but set apart for political purposes, to serve as leaven and salt and light throughout the, the places of the world. It was very much a politically oriented understanding. Um, Paul refers to the church as God's elect or God's chosen, and we'll talk about this more in the future. But uh, elect or chosen—that's not the theory of predestination, right there. That—that um, that was what God called Israel. That election, uh, predestination; those words have to do with vocation. They're not—they don't—they're not salvation words um Israel was elected to be a blessing to the nations and so Paul not only refers to them as holy now only talks to them about shalom and, and bringing shalom to the places they're in um but he he uses the 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 same words that were used to describe Israel's vocation Peter does this dramatically in first and second Peter when he talks about the the people of God now as being a, a holy nation and a um a royal priesthood. I mean, he's he's using uh, language directly from Exodus 19 to kind of describe how the church is is to behave. So, the the big points here: Paul's transformation. Paul Paul transformed his thought uh, in several ways regarding now the, the fact that this Jesus had been resurrected. Um, that works itself out in and through his churches. So he, be, he begins to plant gospel communities with the message that Jesus is Lord and that this Lord Jesus is now calling forth people of all ethnicity to become part of this new community vision. And then the, the very last and most important point is this new community vision was going to be governed by governed by the same vocation, that uh, the nation of Israel originally had. And that will then take us to Paul's instructions about how to practice politics in the world as the new polis of Jesus. So I hope the sound levels were better. I hope this makes sense. You guys are amazing. I'm so very grateful to be a part of your life. Um, and, And just thank you. Thank you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. May he give you peace in these days. Um, I, I am profoundly thankful to be a part of this community and hope uh, very deeply that this is helpful. Until next time, my friends. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to this conversation. The Vox Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by by listeners like yourself if you'd like to partner with us you can do so at patreon.com backslash you can also engage with the hosts on social media at facebook.com backslash podcast, on instagram at voxpodcast and on twitter at mike erie thank you for walking this road with us